thank you for listening, but please be advised that I don't hold any degrees in any of the subjects I talk about on this show. Please use skeptical inquiry to confirm information for yourself, and if you think I missed something or got something wrong, please correct me. I can be reached at livingthroughextinction at gmail.com. Please also be advised that I swear, especially if I get excited or passionate about something. And I don't bother to bleep that shit out. So, listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Ruby and this is episode 58 of Living Through Extinction, a short to the point podcast with science, skepticism, environment, wildlife, and ways we as people can be better for future generations. Today I'm going to talk about the 12 people slash couples responsible for 65% of all vaccine disinformation on social media, Coors's elimination of the plastic six-pack ring, what's killing elephants in Sri Lanka, a breakthrough in MS research, and mentalism, hot and cold readings. If you've joined me before, then thank you so much for returning. If this is your first time listening to Living Through Extinction, welcome! I hope you find it both fun and informative. The disinformation dozen. Everyone was talking about them last summer, but I realized I never spoke about them at all in the show. So here we go. A study analyzed vaccine disinformation content shared or posted most often on Facebook and Twitter from February 1st to March 16th, 2021. What they found was that 65% of all of it could be traced back to 11 individuals and one couple. That's 13 people who are spreading their bullshit, some of them to make money, and somehow people are believing these 13 people over all the specialists in the fucking world. Those people have millions of followers who share and repeat, and some of those followers have followers, and they share and repeat, and so on and so on. So who is this disinformation coming from? Who are these anti-vaxxers? Three are osteopathic physicians. Insert facepalm here. One is the founder of an alternative medicine portal. One is a social epidemiologist. One is a chiropractor. One is a lawyer. There are two authors. There is a couple who are a pair of self-proclaimed filmmakers. There's one who runs an anti-Semitic alternative health site. And there's one who's an anti-Semitic and anti-LGBTQ social media influencer. These are the people coming up with and putting out the majority of false claims, misleading claims, and outright lies about vaccines. Many of them are selling supplements, books, and natural health services, which they want you to pay for instead of getting the vaccine. They aren't just doing it for fun. They profit off of the garbage they spill. Just to make it very clear how much these people don't know what they're talking about, let's look at some of the claims that have come from these immoral assholes. COVID doesn't exist. Nope, just doesn't exist. 5G cell service is connected to COVID. Doctors have some sort of secret motivation to recommend vaccines. The treatments or products being offered by these individuals are the real cure, not the vaccine. Like a vaccine never claimed to be a cure. It's a fucking preventative, but whatever. 
most of these people have also spread all sorts of scientifically disproven medical claims and conspiracy theories for years before COVID came along. And all of them misused VARS data over and over and over again, even after it was pointed out to them what VARS actually is and what and how it tracks. In case you're unaware, when you hear someone talk about VARS, V-A-E-R-S, they are talking about mass numbers without context. VARS itself makes it very clear that they collect all information on any adverse event, death, hospitalization, or illness that occurs after someone was inoculated for COVID. Anyone can submit to VARS, and the submissions are not verified by anyone, let alone the CDC or FDA. There's not even any names or contact information attached to it. So for all we know, and this is just me talking, but for all we know, bots are making these entries. It's ridiculous and immoral to use VARS in any way that these anti-vaxxers are doing. The data there means nothing when it comes to actual vaccine mortality. Nothing. Where did the last bit of vaccine disinformation you came across originate from? Where did they get it from? And where did they get it from? There's a 65% chance that what you came across originated with someone from the disinformation dozen. Who I refuse to name here. Fuck the disinformation dozen. And be skeptical, damn it. Coors Light is phasing out its plastic six-pack rings. It's going to cost the company $85 million to upgrade their packaging and machinery. That's a big chunk, even for such a large company. Six-packs will instead be wrapped in recyclable cardboard carriers, and they will be sustainably sourced. The plan is to implement it globally for all of their labels by 2025. This will be eliminating the production and use of around 1.7 million pounds of plastic per year. Steps like this make a difference. Good for them. There's an open landfill site in Sri Lanka where Asian elephants and endangered species keep going to eat. Knowing this was a problem and dangerous for the elephants, there was at one time an electric fence put up around it. Unfortunately, in 2014, the fence was struck by lightning and it was never repaired. Since then, 20 elephants have died. Conservationists and vets have warned about this threat to the endangered animals for years, and the most recent two deaths have them speaking up again. What has killed each of them is the plastic. When examined by vets, large amounts of non-degradable plastics were found in the past animals, including things like food wrappers and also some water, but very little to no food. The plastic fills up the system and doesn't make its way out, so there is little to no room left for actual food that would supply them with actual nutrition. Hopefully the conservationists and vets can convince them to fix this fucking fence before too many more Asian elephants are lost in this way. Today's research topic is yet another skeptical related one. Mentalism and hot and cold readings. This won't go on yearly as long as the March episodes, I promise. Why do I think this is important? How does teaching these things affect our kids in the future? Well, while there are tons of honest mentalists who put on a good show, but never actually make any false claims, there are also those who use their skills to dupe people out of their hard-earned money. I think having an understanding of how these things work can be a huge advantage to someone in avoiding being taken in. As far as I'm concerned, there are two types of hot and cold readers. Those who lie and call it a psychic power of some kind, and those who perform with the admission that they are performing mentalism tricks. The liars use these same tricks, but claim to be mediums, psychics, faith healers, etc. 
The mentalist community is very much against using mentalism to fool people outright. They are tricks for entertainment. Cold reading is the most common technique, and a true cold read with no preparation is something done by those with the highest of skills. I had the privilege of watching Matt Dillahunty do this live when he was here in Winnipeg. It's fascinating. An article by Ray Hyman, published in a 1977 issue of the Skeptical Inquirer, was titled, How to Convince Strangers That You Know All About Them. In it, he goes over cold reading and some of the assumptions made and observations used by cold readers when coming up with which direction to take in a reading. If you ever want to try cold reading for yourself, this is a really good read. The assumption is made that we are all more alike than we are different, and that our problems are generated by the same major transitions in life. Those are birth, puberty, work, marriage, children, old age, and death. A client is often looking to be read due to some conflict with love, money, or health. Subtle details are looked for and picked up by the reader, such as the neatness, style, cost, and age of clothing and jewelry worn by the client, or their hand gestures and manner of speech. A big tell on how someone spends their days is the condition of their hands and fingernails. Apparently the hands are one of the most revealing parts of us to a mentalist. Some will use a distractive device such as a crystal ball. This way the client has something to focus on while the reader studies them further. A reader may use what are known as shotgun statements. These will apply to most people and the trick is to not be too specific while at the same time not appearing vague. By saying a lot of things in a short time and watching the client's face for clues and reactions, they can narrow down topics. They will ask a lot of quick-fire questions and then the client may unintentionally provide something. That something can then be used later in the reading as though they had just intuited it. I know what you're thinking. The person being read would remember providing them with this information. That's not actually the case. There have been many cases where people went in with someone and the observer took notes while the person being read just participated. And there have also been instances where people have hidden a recorder on their person when attending a reading. It happens almost every time. The person being read provides some bit of information, and when they come out, they are astounded that the reader got this. And then they listen back, and they learn that they themselves provided that information in the first two minutes of the reading. I wish I could remember what this was from. I listened to a lot of skeptic shows. It was recent for sure. Someone talked about coming out of a reading amazed that the reader had gotten their mother's name right away. I think it was the mother. Anyway, he had someone in there with him taking notes, and that person showed him in her notes where she had written down that the reader had said several names before the right one. She had a list of them right there. He had no memory of that. All he remembered was the correct name being said. He was astounded, and now I'm not going to sleep tonight if I can't figure out which show I heard this on. God damn it! Anyway, back to cold reading. I'll have a breakdown about trying to remember that later. When a cold reader performs in front of an audience, it gives them the opportunity to study them before choosing participants to join them for a trick. Whether with an audience or one-on-one, -on -one, many mentalists have what Ray Hyman calls stock spiels, memorized and ready to go. These spiels are grouped depending on the type of person encountered. They all consist of statements that could fit almost anyone, but different spiels may be tailored for specific types of people or for specific circumstances. And then there's the commonality of names. James Underwood of the Center for Inquiry pointed out that a typical studio audience, for example, has 200 seats. Each of those people probably knows 150 people or more. So when someone like John Edwards starts shouting out names, there are possible 30,000 names out there that he could hit on. It would be more unusual if he didn't get someone's close relative's name. 
Also, because of our habit of remembering the hits and forgetting about the misses, the part that will always stand out in our memories will be when the name of someone we know is said, not all of the names that nobody responded to. Hot readings, unlike cold readings, can consist of all sorts of preparations. I believe it was James Randi who shared this particular one, probably in one of the interviews I've heard. I'm not sure it would be as easy to get away with today with the way tickets are sold, but back then it was nothing to get the names and addresses of the people who bought tickets, as well as see as where they would be seated. So when on stage at a performance, he picked out a woman from the crowd. As a means of demonstrating his ability to intuit things about her, he started describing a broken clock in her living room. She was hooked. How could he possibly describe a broken clock in her living room, where he has never been? For her, this cinched it. He was the real deal. For sure, he was the real deal. How do you think he did that? If you already follow James Randi, or did when he was still here, you probably already know this story. But if you've never heard it before, what do you think? How did he pick out this woman in a crowd of people and start describing her living room to her, including a perfect description of a broken clock and its location in that living room? In the weeks leading up to the show, this is another thing that's definitely dated. In the weeks before the show, a fake salesman of vacuums went to some of the addresses of people who bought tickets. If they were let in, then they would observe all of the details they thought could be useful. In conversation, sometimes other things came up, like an ill relative or something like that, and they would note that as well. I wonder what the plan was supposed to be if they accidentally made a sale. Anyway, that's how this living room was known. And the observer specifically asked about the interesting looking clock and learned about it and how it didn't work, etc, etc. That all gets reported back to the mentalist. And if they decide to use it, then they note the name and where in the audience this person is going to be seated. On show night, they find that person and proceed to perform a hot reading on them. Mentalists have also used fake magazine salespeople or fake clergy for these purposes. I feel like only the clergy would work today. Are there still magazine salespeople going door to door? I really don't think so. But anyway, the trick with a hot reading is that the person being read is not aware that the person reading them has access to a specific piece of information. To them, there's no way this person could know. People have been amazed at psychic readings, only to realize that all of the information the psychic talked about was available on their social media accounts. There was actually someone who experimented by putting a bunch of fake information on his account in the weeks leading up to his appointment with a psychic, and sure enough, the psychic brought up the fake stuff he had posted like they were his real-life events. Sometimes a mentalist will have assistants throughout the audience, not to come up on stage as participants, but to converse with the audience members around them. They go to the bathroom or for concessions and report their findings back about the people they ended up sitting by. Prayer cards have been a way for supposed faith healers to heart-read people for decades. That was Popoff's method before he was busted with the earpiece by someone sent by James Randi. If you haven't heard that audio, go find it. I'd say Google James Randi and Peter Popoff and it'll probably come up. I love it when con people get exposed so thoroughly. In case you're not familiar, Popoff always had prayer cards people could choose to fill out before entering the show. People would write down their names and what or who they would like to be prayed for. He would start the show and his wife would go through the cards and read them to him through an earpiece. So he would literally call people out by name as though the Lord was providing their names to him and then start talking to them about their ailments. 
The gentleman who worked with James Randi, whose name I cannot for the life of me recall right now, was in the audience at one of Popoff's shows when he noticed the earpiece. This would have been more unusual back then. Today everyone's going to have an earpiece in. But back then, why did he have an earpiece? What was he receiving? What was the point of that? They couldn't think of any good reason why it would be required for the show, so a plan was hatched. They went to the next show, prepared to intercept the transmission and record whatever was intercepted. And that's how they got that recording of Popoff's wife going, Can you hear me? I hope you can hear me, because if you can't, you're in trouble. And then the rest, where she told them who to call out and what their problems were. I say if you're going to fill out a prayer card before a show, lie on it to test them. Lie on it and see if they call on you as though it was your real problem. Mentalism is awesome, but as entertainment, not when used to dupe people. The mentalists I follow all completely condemn pretending a trick is not a trick. They won't necessarily tell you how they did it, how they tricked you, but they will admit, usually at the very beginning or end of a show, that everything performed is a trick. Not real mind reading, not real magic. All tricks. In summary, cold reading is done on the spot by reading the person in front of them at that time and making guesses with no preparation, while hot reading involves preparing ahead of time, doing research on the person to be read, and presenting the knowledge at the time of the reading as though it was intuited. While both methods are meant to trick you, both can be used either for entertainment or to scam people out of their money. So don't be tricked. Be skeptical, damn it. Multiple sclerosis affects 2.8 million people worldwide, and there is no definitive cure. It's a chronic inflammatory disease of the central nervous system which attacks myelin sheaths. Myelin sheaths are what is protecting the neurons in your brain and spinal cord. So kind of important. A study has been completed which has identified a probable cause. While this won't lead to a cure, stopping the cause could very well be possible, which would stop future people from developing MS. This study was huge, with data from 10 million young adults. Access to the blood of all these individuals was granted by the U.S. military, who take, I think it was biannual, blood samples from those on active duty. It's now considered quite probable that the Epstein-Barr virus is the trigger for developing MS. The Epstein-Barr virus, or EBV, is known for causing mononucleosis, also known as the kissing disease. It's a type of herpes virus which most people carry with no realization. The symptoms can go undetected and have an evolving relationship with the immune system, which is stimulated again and again whenever the virus reactivates. The person may never know about it. Just like most people have HPV, but only a certain percentage will develop cervical cancer because of it, most people have EBV, and it appears that a certain percentage of people might develop MS because of it. This connection between EBV and MS had been hypothesized in the past, but this is the first time there has been compelling evidence for it to be true. If further study confirms this, then stopping EBV may be the way to ensure people in the future will not develop MS. If researchers are permitted to work towards a vaccine for EBV, just like they did for HPV, then MS could be prevented just like we are now preventing cervical cancer. Can you imagine? 
The study was conducted by a team of scientists led by Harvard University's Neuroepidemiology Research Group and published in the journal Science in January of this year. So go check that out. It was funded by the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke, the National Institute of Health, the National Multiple Sclerosis Society, the German Research Foundation, and Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Now, if these groups also decide to fund work on an EBV vaccine, then MS might be something our great-grandkids only know from reading about in history books. And that's awesome. That makes 58 episodes. I'll be hitting 60 in May. I might start deleting some of the earlier ones soon. I haven't made up my mind on that yet, but the earliest episodes really have nothing to do with the show as it is today. Maybe I'll try and figure out how to put them on Patreon. Anyway, thank you for listening. May your health and sanity be replenished daily. Thank you to Jason Martin for composing the intro-outro for the show, and thank you to Kathy Rayner and Paul Palmer for their musical contributions on the violin and guitar. I hope you will join me again in two weeks for episode 59 of Living Through Extinction. Very serious situation here in Hawaii. Earlier this evening, the uh, civil defense calling for an evacuation of all low-lying areas because of a tsunami threat. Sky turns black as giant tornadoes touch down. From Nebraska to Texas, apocalyptic scenes as twisters tear through the southern plains.